Okay, good morning everyone. Come and grab your seat. Let's get started. Okay, what we're going to do today is we're getting back into the series on the book of Hebrews. So if you've got your Bible, turn to Hebrews chapter 9. We'll be diving back in there. We've been covering that last year. We took a break, Christmas and the like. Uh, and then we did our In This House series just to kick us off in the new venue, getting things going. But we'll get back into that moment. Now, before we do that, I don't know what you like doing for fun or to relax or to chill out kind of when you get those precious moments to yourself. Now, one of the things I enjoy doing is going for a run. It's just everyone's different. That's my thing. I enjoy going for a run. But when you do that, it has certain byproducts of sort of how it works out. Now, when I come home from a run, particularly at this time of year, certain things are usually true. And this happened on Saturday because some of us were up early and we went to the park run over at Kingsbury Water and did the, the 5K run there, which is great fun. But when you finish the park run, um, and this time weather, you're usually, one thing, very sweaty because you've been running. The other thing, very muddy because you've been flying through the class, and you're covered in mud. And just as a treat for you all, I brought my trainers in just to show you what it's like. These are my trainers, put nearly 900 kilometers on these, but this is, this is what they look like after yesterday's run. I'll just leave them at the front if you want to come and have a little look for them. But this is indicative of what I look like kind of head to foot. I was covered in sort of mud up the back, uh, and I was also a bit smelly. Um, and I noticed when I was driving home with Joe in the car, and you had the blowers on because it was a bit cold outside. It just, you know, you can imagine what it felt like, actually. Didn't like to say anything. It's mainly Joe, not me, but that's, that's what I like. So you're a bit sweet. Now, the problem is when I got home, and if you've done any kind of physical exercise and you exert yourself, you get the kind of the high after. It's what they say, the endorphins or something. You kind of feel that kind of buzz. So when I come home from a run or the like, I'm usually feeling pretty buzzy by the time I've just kind of got over the initial exhaustion, but I'm like, I'm a buzzy, and so I want to talk to someone, I want to chat with someone, so I go in and see Mel, and she's my wife, obviously, and she is overcome with my manliness of doing the run, so I want to be, you know, friendly with my wife, and so maybe a hug wouldn't be out of the question, or a kiss or something, just like, you know, bask in, you know, my masculinity, however, my wife's response is not quite what I would hope for in that situation. She's basically along the lines of, get away from me, you filthy man. Just don't even come near me. And you know when you like, you know when those embarrassing moments when you try to hug someone who you think should reciprocate, but they don't? And you do the, and they do the, you know, it's kind of a bit awkward and not great for you. We've had quite a few of those over the years when I've gone for my little run and come back. And it's not, and when it's on some of the bad days, Mel sometimes catches me. Kind of as I come in the front door, I have my little key, I open the front door, she hears it open and I come onto the, the mat and the voice sounds from I know not where, but somewhere in the recesses of the house is someone like, don't take a step further. Um, yes, Lord. You know, what, what's, what's going on? And then Melanie appears and says, no, shoes off there. So I have to take the trainers off. And then, then she sometimes says, I'm particularly muddy. Right, and everything else off. And I'm thinking, score. Okay, that's fine. But it's like, no, shower now. And I'm like, can I have a, have a drink? You know, I've come home. I've, no. Can I have you know, something to eat? A bit peckish? No. Can I even come in the kitchen and see my children? No. 
You cannot do that. You just cannot go near any other person or any furniture or anything. And I am basically sent away to clean myself and make myself acceptable to kind of enter the family sort of living area of the house. And so the point of that is actually sometimes we're not always acceptable because we're not clean enough. We're not always acceptable to go into every situation because we're not as clean as people would want us or we should be. And for me, when I've come back for a run, I'm sweaty, smelly, and usually dirty as well. And basically, I'm unacceptable to go into those places. I haven't been clean. And what we're going to look at today as we kind of finish, carry on with this passage, is Hebrews, is this whole idea of being clean before God. We've been looking through the book of Hebrews. We've done the first eight chapters. And I sent out on the email, I think on Friday there was that video that we watched at the beginning, just a reminder of the kind of the overview of the letter. And after the initial kind of, um, uh, from the author, the initial sort of opening of Jesus being the, the sort of this thing, this person we should look at who was above everything, he's gone systematically and basically saying Jesus is better than anything. And that's why we've called this, this um, series, Jesus is better than everything. He's gone through Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is a better high priest. He's better than Moses. He's a better hope. He's a better rest, etc., etc. And today we've got to, do, to Jesus is a better cleansing. And we're going to look at that today, um, what it is. So if you've got your Bible, uh, Hebrews chapter 9. <clears throat> I'm going to read the chapter to us and then we'll have a little look at it. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which, were, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a, uh, was a second section called the most holy place, having the gold of altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, an Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic of the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshipper. But will deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not my... Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore he is a mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised internal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every 
commandment of the law has been declared by Moses to all the people. He took the blood of the calves and goats and water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both um, the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tents and all the vessels in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves were uh, with better sacrifices than these. For Christ entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor it was to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ has been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly await him. All right, big idea of what we're going to look at today. Only in Jesus can we be truly clean. Only in Jesus can we be truly clean. First section, 1 to 10, the limitation of the blood of bulls and goats. What the author is writing about in that situation is he's talking about the old tabernacle, which you go back to the book of Exodus, you hear that God has kind of speaks to Moses and they do that. That then becomes the temple, uh, the idea of the temple, which was still existence um, kind of in Jesus' day. And you see that working its way through and he describes what this place of holiness is like he calls it and the, the tabernacle basically had a couple of sections it had the sort of the outer section that first section the holy place and in that was the lampstand the seven branch lampstand that would stand there and that was burnt and that was lit that was made of gold there was a table with consecrated bread which had 12 loaves on it that was replaced every sabbath representing the 12 um, tribes of israel there, so that was in the outer section of it. Um, and then there was an inner part, the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, that was separated by a curtain. So you have a curtain across here. So we had the holy place. Then we had the most holy place. And inside the most holy place, separated with the curtain, the curtain had on it embroidery. And it was very beautiful. And it had the images of the, the cherubim, which are those angelic creatures which protected kind of the presence of God. We see that when um, Adam and Eve are thrown out in the garden. He was there standing guard with a flaming sword. An angel on the cherubim was there saying, you can't come in here anymore because of what you've done. So we have this, this curtain inside. There it says you had the altar of incense, which had the incense that they burned. It also had the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God, which was a golden ark made with wood, cassia wood, and overlaid with gold. Inside the Ark was some of Israel's most holiest kind of... Um, Items. It had an urn that had the manna when God provided for his people in the wilderness for all those years, dropping manna kind of every day. They took some of the manna, put it in the urn, put it in the ark. Also, there's Aaron's rod. Aaron was the high priest, the first high priest. He had a rod. There was a, a story where I think it was Korah, they tried to rebel against him, and God miraculously made his staff bud. Sort of buds appeared on his kind of wooden staff. That went in there. And there was also the very tablets that God had given Moses with the law written on it also went inside there. So there was all these kind of holy things in the middle of that. And the priests had their duties. And the priests could go into the outer section 
twice a day to offer sacrifices. And the priests were from the tribe of Levi, the descendants of Aaron, so it was a very limited number. They could go in there and they could perform their priestly duties. Everyone else had to be camped around the tabernacle. They couldn't go inside. And then inside the most holy place, through the curtain, only one person could go. And that was the high priest. And that person could only go once a year. And they can only go once a year on a special day. If you look in the Bible at Leviticus chapter 16, you find out the details of that day. It was called the Day of Atonement. And once a year, the high priest would enter through the curtains to the most holy place, but he couldn't go without blood. It says he couldn't go without offering a sacrifice. He offered sacrifices twice daily anyway in the outer courts, but to go in, he had to take um, a sacrifice. A sacrifice represented for his own sin, but also for the unintentional sins of the people that they had kind of committed, they hadn't realized they had committed, just trying to cover everything. So he would have to go in with that blood. And what he would do is he would go and find the ark, which would be in the holy place. On top of the ark was a, a section of gold called the mercy seat. And over it were the, were the images of the cherubim. And they had their kind of, they were, there were faces and there were wings that came over and the two wings touched And on the mercy seat was kind of where the presence of God would be. And he had to offer the blood on that place to atone for his sins. Because he couldn't come into the presence of God without atoning for sin. Because of the holiness of God. And that's what he had to do. And it said it comes in, it says in verse 7, he would never come in without blood. He'd have to come in. The blood would have to make the way to do that. And that would be something that had to be repeated every single year. That was part of their kind of ritual lifestyle of um, that Old Testament covenant that the high priest had to go in every year to offer blood for the sins of the people and for himself as on top of all the other offerings that they would have made on a daily basis in the temple as well and for other kind of times and years. The point of that, the point the author is trying to make is there is no free and unhindered access into the presence of God. You just can't get in there. You can't. The whole nation, God's chosen people, numbering various points, way over a million of them, one person once a year could enter the presence of God. And he couldn't do that without taking blood to atone for his sin. There was no way of getting in. He wasn't clean. The people weren't clean. There was no way you could stand before a pure and holy God. It was, there was a limitations to it, to the system. They had something in place, but the fact they had to keep doing it, keep repeating it, keep going over and over it, um, meant that it was limited ultimately and it wouldn't eventually work. The point is the people were slaves to sin, the Bible says. They were slaves of sin. Sin internally corrupted mankind. It wasn't something you could just get, you could get away with. It wasn't just outward actions that they did. It was actually part of an internal corruption in our nature that kept us out of the presence of God. And so we couldn't come in. And there was so even the system that was set up, high priest going in once a year, all those sacrifices, all those animals, all that blood, it still was completely limited. But then he says at the end, good news, A time of reformation is coming. A time of change is coming. That word is used to describe a building that was in disrepair, that needed fixing. It was a a law that was kind of proved ineffective, that needed changing, or a count that was in arrears and needed settling. That kind of idea. There was something deficient, something defective, something wrong with this situation. It needed solving. It needed changes. So it needed to be a time of reformation. And the, the rest of it, he outlines three things. 
that I want to look at about the blood that changes. We move from the blood of bulls and goats to the blood of Christ, it talks about. It comes a lot in that section. There are three things. There's the power of Jesus' blood, the necessity of Jesus' blood, and the finality of Jesus' blood. First one, the power of Jesus' blood. The sacrifices that was given at the temple, the tabernacle before it, the temple after it, ultimately were ineffective. They were limited in what they could do, but the blood of Christ was fully and completely effective in what it was doing. It says, if you read that next section, it says Jesus went into the holy place, but he didn't go into the earthly holy place. He didn't go through an earthly curtain into an earthly physical place in the temple or the tabernacle. It said he went into the holy place in heaven. It was one not made with human hands. It was the true holy place because the one on earth was merely a copy of something that in heaven. It was never meant to be the real thing. It was merely just, it was, it was a copy. It was a representative of it. It wasn't the real thing. I don't know if you've seen that um, film Zoolander. Anyone seen that film? But old Scott, it's one of Mel's favourites actually. Yeah, no, you don't. You made me watch it. You said you loved it. And the idea that it's got, uh, so it's Ben Siller as this male model. And the whole idea about the, the film is that the more good looking you are, the dumber you are. I personally find that very offensive, just saying. But anyway, there's a bit in the film where they're, ma- uh, they're making a school in this guy's honour, Zoolander's honour, um, because that's what they do in films of male models. But they're making, and so they bring him in and they show him the copy of uh, the little model of the, um, of the school. And they say to him, say, Mr. Zoolander, do you like the, 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 the model of the school. This is what the school's going to be. Do you like it? Is it, is it? Does it meet with your approval? And he looks at it, and he looks at it, and he says, he says, where are the children going to go? Are there, are there little children that are going to go in here? They won't all fit in the school. It's, it's too small. Are you stupid? Because well, this isn't going to work. Totally missing the point. It was merely a copy. It was merely something representative <laughs> And the tabernacle on earth was merely a representative of something so much bigger, so something more real, which was in heaven. It says Christ went there. And it says he didn't go through his own, didn't go through the the blood of bulls and goats. Whose blood did he go through? He took his own. He took his own shed blood there, not the bulls of goats. And it says he secured an eternal redemption. The blood of bulls and goats did have some effect. It could make people outwardly clean. It could take the ceremonially unclean, things they'd done, things that happen, you find on the law, ways you make you unclean. It could deal with that, but it couldn't cleanse men's conscience. It couldn't deal with the internal problem that would make us free to serve a living God. It couldn't deal with guilt and shame and the corruptions that come from our own heart and the things we've done and the things we do. Someone once said, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And Christ's blood could deal with that when the blood of bulls and goats didn't. So when he came, it says in that section that Jesus offered his own blood. He went into the heavenly holy place. Offered it said, and it says he can cleanse our conscience from good works, purify our conscience. So Jesus' death did two things. It brought us freedom from slavery, which is eternal redemption. No longer do we need to be slaves to sin. That power that holds us and binds us, that bias that's in our nature that takes us off towards sin. 
We can be redeemed. Redeemed just means to be bought out of slavery. The image of that runs throughout the scripture. It goes back to Exodus where the people were in slavery and Moses went to Pharaoh, let my people go. God performed mighty acts. He led them out through uh, the Dead Sea towards the promised land. We were like that. We were slaves under a tyrant of sin that held us completely captive. There's nothing we can do but Christ's blood redeems us eternally that we may be free it also purifies our conscience we can be free from guilt and shame the things that we carry about us the things that are on us the corruption of sin can be removed that bias towards sin can be taken away through the power of christ the second thing the necessity of jesus blood the necessity of jesus blood the author makes a point there that actually there was always blood there's always blood. I've always been fascinated reading the Old Testament. You can kind of just read over it in gloss. But if you actually think about it, there's a lot of blood there. There's a lot of death. There's a lot of animals that have to die in that process. There's always blood. Why is there always blood? Because there's always sin that needs forgiving. There's always a price that needs to be paid. There is always a debt that needs to be settled. When we sin, when we offend a holy God... It's all about God's holiness, totally pure, totally separate, totally other than us. When we compare ourselves to the holy God, our sin is exposed in every graphic way. Things we've done, things we haven't done that we should have done, sins of commission, sins of omission they're called, things we thought about doing that maybe have never come out of our mouth. No one one knows about that, only thought about that. No, God knows, God sees, God sees it all. Every evil corruption and desire in our heart, every kind of false thought, every kind of manipulative word, every kind of condemning statement, every time we just try to get away with something, it's all been exposed before God. And before a holy God, we all fall short, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It says we're all guilty for that. And when you offend an infinite God who is infinitely holy, there is only one punishment death that's what we deserve that's what we are under for the litany of things we've done time after time after time we sin so it must be paid for and under the old covenant there was sacrifice to deal with that sacrifice after sacrifice even on the day of atonement the priest the high priest had to go and offer for his own sin and the unintentional sins of the people the people they didn't the ones they didn't even realize that they'd done the ones they didn't even know about, not the obvious ones, the, kind of the not so obvious ones. They said, well, we'll do a sacrifice for that, just covers it all. We can cover it all. Debt can be placed. And blood was the price. It says, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. The debt must be paid for sin. It cannot go unpunished. You cannot simply let someone off for sin. Someone has to absorb it somehow. Someone has to pay the price. Whatever it is, there's always someone who pays. And either you pay or God chooses to pay for himself. So there was always a necessity for blood. There was always a need for blood. Right back to the first covenants, there was blood shed. And it went all the way through the Old Testament. All the covenants, all the festivals, blood was shed to pay for the sins of the people. And then we get the finality of Jesus' blood. The high priest at the Day of Atonement had to do it year after year. There's also the sacrifice they offered twice daily anyway outside the most holy place as part of the tabernacle and temple. There was always that going on. But when Christ went through, there was one single 
sacrifice. He was it. There was never need for any more. It was final, complete, done. When Christ went, he offered his blood, which was perfect. Not the blood of bulls and goats, his blood, which was completely perfect. And he dealt with it. He died once for all, so that there was no more, no more needing to be sacrificed. It was a past, present, future action dealt with once for all time. What did Christ say on the cross? It is finished. Done. What happened when he died on the cross? It says in the temple. The curtain tore in two. The way was open. Anyone could come through. It was completely final. It was gone. And the author actually uses the image of, of kind of us, us dying. He says actually it was an unrepeatable thing. Just like man dies once, Christ only needs to die once. That's it. It's all over. It's done. It's finished. It's why we don't repeat it. It's why we don't sacrifice anything now. It's why, why the church hasn't sacrificed anything since its inception. All gone. All done. Over. Completely. Now we do remember it. How do we remember it? With the bread and the wine. We do that. Life groups this week. Why don't you make sure you share some this week? Think about it. We don't repeat it, but we do remember Christ's sacrifice. We remember it every time. Every time we meet together, we, we come together and we remember his sacrifice for us. We sing about it. We talk about it. It's why we're here. Sacrifice of Christ. It's all over. Um, it's all finished. A few bits of application and then we will finish and worship here. Okay. Because of Jesus' blood, because of that great work he's done, there's a couple of things I just want to highlight to us today. The first one, we can be free. We can be free. If you're not a Christian here today, if you're not a Christian here today, you can be free. You can be free right here this morning. That power, that way to God can be open for you today. It's not something closed. It's not something cryptic. God loves you. He knows you. He wants to get to know you. He, he wants to have a relationship with you, and he wants to do it today, right here, right now. Some people object to actually about being a, a Christian. Some people think, well, I'm just too bad. I've done this. I've done that. They can list their sins. They know what's kind of gone on in their life. They think, I'm too bad for God. That's a lie. There's no one too bad for God. God saved me. God saved all these other people in the room. God saved them. God will save you. There's nothing you can do that the blood of Jesus can't cover. There's nothing to do if you repent, if you turn away from your sins, if you come to him to faith. There is nothing that he can't deal with. There's no shame, no guilt, no crime too great for God's mercy and grace to cover. And he will love you and he wants to get to know you today. And if that's you, we'd love to talk to you, pray with you. Some people think, the other extreme of that is some people think they're too good for God. People think, well, I don't need God. I don't need God because, you know what? I kind of got it sort of, I'm a good person. I don't do these things, like the rich lung ruler. Well, I don't do that. I don't lie. I murder. You know, I don't steal. I don't think, I'm too good for I don't need God. Basically, you're self-righteous and proud. It's trying to earn spiritual brownie points to kind of say, well, I don't need you, God. I've got this life sorted. I'm okay. I'm not as bad as some of those people I see on the telly. You know, presidents of the United States kind of thing. You know, those people. I'm not like that. I'm not that bad. I'm way better than that. 
No, you're not. Because when you compare yourself to a holy God, you suddenly find how, how, how far you fall. And let's be honest, even comparing yourself to yourself, you fail all the time. We all have these, own, these standards we try to hit and we just can't keep them. New Year's resolutions we do, things we want to try and do, be good, all this. We can't even hit our own standards. We're just lying to ourselves. We all need a saviour. If you're a Christian here, if you follow Jesus, if you know he saved you, he know he loves you, this is great news. Sin has no power over you. You are free. You're no longer a slave. The Bible says when we weren't believers, we were slaves to sin. A slave has no, uh, has no power to go anywhere or do anything. The master controls him and he tells him what to do. When we are free, we have been set free in Christ. We can be free in him. There is no sin that has power over you that can control you. Absolutely nothing. It has been broken in your life. Everything you think, oh, I can't stand that temptation, I can't, that, that's all rubbish. You are holy and acceptable and righteous in God's sight. And you are free to serve him, free to love him, free to worship him, and nothing controls you. No temptation, no sin, nothing. You are completely free. That is good news. Thank you for those. You are totally free. And that is a wonderful place. This, this way that has been made open is for you. You can have free and unhindered access to God. Nothing can stop that way. Any time, any place, the Holy Spirit of God dwells in you and speaks to you, transforms you, sanctifies you. This is a wonderful thing. The second thing is we can be clean. We can be clean. Truly clean. Not dirty, sweaty clean, but just truly, internally clean. The bottom line is, as, as uh, the sin corrupts our nature, it's, in, it's an internal thing. It's what comes out of us that pollutes us. But in Christ, it says we have been made new creations. The old has gone. The new has come. We have been completely and utterly transformed. We are now holy and righteous, which means all the things we've done, things we're ashamed of, things we're guilty of, they're all gone. We stand completely holy and righteous before God. We can come, it says even in Hebrews, we read that, we can come boldly into his presence, charge in. We don't have to wait for a sacrifice one day a year. The high priest is going to go on our behalf because we can't. No, we get to come Bold access to our Father in Heaven. Just look at the kids when they come back in, how they interact with their parents. They don't care about anything. When they want to talk to mummy or daddy, that you could be the Queen of England. They're going straight to mummy and daddy and they're going to talk to them. And they're going to demand their attention. We can be like that with God. We go straight in. There's no waiting. There's no kind of working it up, trying to get good. We can be completely clean before God. If you're residing under guilt and shame over anything that's happened in your life and you've repented and dealt with it, you shouldn't be. You're believing a lie from the enemy who basically says you're worthless and you're useless and you're small and you'll never amount to anything before God. And that's rubbish. Because everything you've achieved, you can achieve in God, you've already got in Christ. You've already hit A. You're already there, top notch. You've already received the grace he's going to give you, the mercy he's going to give you. You are completely holy and blameless in his sight, which is wonderful news. There's no guilt that should be residing over you. I remember when this hit me. 
I remember an incident uh, many years back, but it was one that was really crystallized, where I remember going through something I felt so ashamed and guilty for doing. I remember going to a church kind of meeting like this. I remember coming forward at the end, and there was some ministry, and a guy prayed for me, and I confessed my sin. I said, oh, it's so terrible, and he prayed. Uh, he said, you've been forgiven, and I pray, God, forgive me, da, 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 da. And then I left the, the meeting, and then Monday morning I woke up, I felt terrible. just felt so guilty about what I'd done. I kept kind of reliving it. It was just like, oh. And I did, uh, it went on all that all week. Like, went on the whole week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and basically kind of ruined the week, took the legs out from under me. I just felt a mess. And I, I went back to church the following week, which was a super effort, just feeling so kind of late, negative and low. But I, there was something in me saying, you know the you know where you need to be. And it overcame my kind of, I don't want to go. But yeah. So I came and kind of slunk in the back, uh, feeling so worthless there. And then they, they had another kind of like, we're going to have a ministry time, you pray, you come forward. And I went forward and I found the same guy and I said, look, you know, we prayed last week and we dealt with this stuff and da 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 And I said, I just feel wretched and worthless and guilty. And, uh, and I said, and he, he said, well, last week we prayed for forgiveness, didn't we? You asked God for forgiveness. And I said, yes. He said, did you mean it? I said, yes, I meant it. And he said, did you believe it? And I went, no. He said, you need to believe it. And in that moment, it literally like weights lifted off me. I'm forgiven. (laughs) I'm free. I'd been leaving a lie all week that I had to maybe do something else to earn God. And God, that he didn't really like me, that he forgave me, but just was like, yeah, but you're still in the doghouse over there. I've forgiven you, but you're, you're, you're kind of my C or D grade Christian now because you've been ranked down the floor. Rather than actually, I'm your chosen son and I am before you holy and righteous. And in believing it in a moment, it took it away. And I don't know if there are people here now who are laboring under guilt and shame of past sins, past problems, past mistakes you've done that you've actually already sought forgiveness for. God's forgiven you. It's gone. Where do your sins go, the Bible says, as far as the... East is from the West. Have you ever looked on a globe how far that is? It's actually an infinite distance. Because if you look at a globe and you think, how far is East from West? Well, if you travel East around the world, what happens? You just keep going East. You can't go West because you just keep going around. Same way if you go West. It's interesting, the, the, the writer in the Bible didn't write North and South. Because what happens when you go North around the world? Eventually, you have to start going as far as the East is from the West. That's how far I've taken your sins away from you. They're gone, forgiven. The other side of that, it's worth saying, is that we can feel unclean from our own sins, but we can also feel it from sins that others have committed against us. And you can be clean there too. There's two sides to this. The biblical word would be expiation for this. We can be cleansed. So actually, it's not just the things that we've done that we feel guilty. Sometimes we, we, we live on the receiving end of others' sins things people have said or done to you, the way they've treated you, and you feel a kind of a shame and a guilt because how they've acted towards you. And you, you in that situation, could have been the victim or just been on the receiving end and haven't actually done anything. Sometimes it's two ways. Sometimes you just receive stuff. I've had things in my life people have said to me, and it's kind of it's landed on me. I'm thinking, whoa, and I've, had to, I've carried the weight of that. I've carried the shame of that, the things people have spoken down to me or, or the like. The truth is you can be clean and free from that as well. You don't have to carry that. That has no weight. That has no power of you. What it is is we, we end up believing lies about ourselves. 
And even things that we've done that have that we believe the lie that we're unclean or we're, we're useless. That's often a common one. If you have children, they, people have told them they're rubbish or they never amount to anything or things like that. They're all lies and we can be free. Christ's blood is bigger than that. Christ's calling is powerful than that. Christ's grace and mercy is way beyond that and can crush that. And we have a, a place to kind of accept that today. It's much of what they do in the Freedom in Christ course. One of the courses just finished. Mike and Sarah are running it. They're starting another one soon. If you're interested, find out a bit more about them. We're going to give you an update of what happened in a week or two. But it's an important thing to know what, how God has called us and not to believe the lies. I love one of my favorite verses in the Bible, 1 John 1, 8 and 9. Very useful one. It says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. And what will he do? Forgive us. And purify, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We can be free from being forgiven. The debt is paid, but also be free and clean before God. Holy and righteousness. Dealt with, put away altogether. Last one. We can have confidence. We can have confidence. What does that mean? What can we have confidence in? Everything. That passage says that he died once for all. Our eternity is secure. Because what happens? Men, uh, we die, and then what do we do? We face judgment. We're going to face judgment. All of us are going to face judgment. You don't have to be a believer to believe that. We're all facing judgment. However you've lived your life, you will face judgment. Thankfully, we have a savior, an advocate who will stand on our behalf and say, actually, I've paid the price. I've paid the price for that one. He's mine. He served me. My blood covers him, covers her. He is holy and righteous now before you, Father. And he accepts, and our Father will accept us and we will be with him forever. With you know your eternity is secure, what does that mean how you can face tomorrow? With supreme confidence. Supreme confidence. There is nothing that can hit you tomorrow or for the rest of this day, that the blood of Jesus can't cover. The blood of Jesus hasn't already covered. There's nothing that's coming your way that you cannot get through with Christ. You can face it in supreme confidence because you know at the end of the day you have an eternity that is secure with him. Whatever we choose to invest our life in, we can choose it to invest it for his kingdom knowing that it will pay dividends in the future. It doesn't matter about what the world says or how the world tells us to live. It's all temporary. It's all going to turn to dust and rust and end up in a landfill at some point anyway. All the awards, all the trophies, all the trinkets we get, houses we live in, cars we drive, they're all going to fall apart. The only thing that works is things that are going to last with confidence. We have nothing to fear. Even one of our greatest fears, dying. That's going to happen to all of us at some point, even to the smallest. It's going to happen. We don't know when. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. It could be decades time. But we're all going to face it and face judgment. But we have nothing to fear in that because we are clean before God and we have an eternity that's secure. The way to him is open, unhindered access. We can come into his presence anytime and all too will be with him in his presence forever. Anyway, this is wonderful news. I'm just going to feel like I just want to pray and do a little business and then we're going to sing and worship. So do you mind standing up? Can the band come up? And we're just going to pray a few things in. I think there's some 
Some of you need to do some business with Jesus now. Okay, if you want to just close your eyes. I think there's a few things that God just wants to highlight with us today, and we just, I just want us to take an opportunity to deal with now. Um, and it's between you and Jesus. There's no one else. It's just you and him, and you can talk to him. And the truth is he knows about it anyway, so it's not like he's like, oh, surprise. No, he knows. And he knows you, and he knows what's going on in your life. First one is there are some of you here who need to accept Christ as your Lord and Savior. You need to become a Christian. You need to go through that process. And you've got objections in your own heart, objections in your own life, like, you know, maybe I think I'm too bad, or maybe I think I'm too good, or maybe you think it's just not relevant. Boy, is it relevant. And you need to make that commitment. You need to do that business with Jesus. You need to come before him. You need to talk to him. You need to say, you need to repent of your sin, which means turn away, accept responsibility for them, seek forgiveness for them, and choose to make this decision to follow Jesus all the days of your life. And if that's you, you need to make that, make that um, decision now, that prayer now. If that is you, we want to talk to you at the end just to help you kind of process what you've just done. We'd love to talk to you about that. If you're a believer here and you know there's things in your life you need to get sorted, many things that have been held over, even just things you, you know, just happened in the last couple of days, you think, I haven't got that right with God. Now's your opportunity. Forgiveness is there as a open from Jesus his blood covers it all just take a moment to say you know God forgive me name it seek the forgiveness and then believe you've received it and walk free from whatever it is those of you who are who know you're carrying around a kind of a sense of guilt and shame whether it's something you've done or you know someone has done to you and you're just kind of living with that I think now's the time just to let's put that to bed let's just, I'm just going to pray for the Holy Spirit to come and that you know that truth that you are forgiven and clean in him he holds no grudge over you he holds no hammer you know it's not like a hammer over you waiting to whack you next time you do something wrong God's grace and mercy is there. And if you are a child of God, you are righteous and holy. You have been completely forgiven and cleansed anyway. And there's a role for us to receive that as his children. So I'm going to pray. Holy Spirit of God, would you come upon your people now, Lord? And would you bring that sense of righteousness and holiness and purity that comes from being in you? Lord God, would you cleanse us from those acts of unrighteousness, our own and others? Lord, we thank you that we stand as your people righteous and holy before you. There's nothing that can separate us from your love, nothing that can separate us from your present. Not heights or depth or angels and demons, nothing the present or the past, nothing in all creation can separate us from you, Jesus. And we thank you and we praise you for that, Lord. We receive that now, Lord Jesus.
that truth, Lord. And Lord, we're looking forward to tomorrow, the next day, Lord, we thank you for the confidence we have in you. That actually we can face anything and everything in you. Our, our eternity is secure in you. You've made that way open, a once for all sacrifice. No more. <laughs> we enjoy your presence even now, God. We want to say we love you, we praise you. Give us grace today to serve you.